I will talk to you of art, for there is nothing else to talk about, for there is nothing else. Life is an obscure hobo bumming a ride on the omnibus of art. Burn gas, buggies, and whip your sour cream of circumstance, and hope. And go ahead and sleep your bloody heads off. Creation is, all else is not. What is not creation is Graham Crackers. Let it all crumble to feed the creator. The artist is, all others are not. A canvas is a canvas, or a painting. A rock is a rock, or a statue. A sound is a sound, or is music. A creature is a creature, or an artist. Where are John, Joe, Jake, Jim, Jerk? Dead, dead, dead. They were not born before they were born. They were not born. Where are Leonardo, Rembrandt, Ludwig? Alive, alive, alive. They were born. Bring on the multitude with a multitude of fishes. Feed them to the fishes for liver oil, to nourish the artist. Stretch their skins upon an easel to give him canvas. Crush their bones into a paste that he might mold them. Let them die. And by their miserable deaths become the clay within his hands that he might form an ashtray or an ark. All that is comes through the eye of the artist. The rest are blind fish swimming in the cave of aloneness. Swim on, you maudlin, muddling, maddened fools. Welcome everyone to I Know Movies and You Don't. That's with me, your host, Kyle Brule. This is a spinoff podcast from the plot hole. It's our addition to our network we're probably going to be doing more shows that 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 might be an over promise at this point but who knows you know the 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 sky's the limit world is oyster as we like to say on the on the show and plot hole joint (laughs) plot hole joint yeah i don't think i I think uh spike lee could sue us for that really i I don't know it's probably it's probably i I don't know i i would think he would probably make that his own thing right i mean he's the only one that does it yeah right. Uh, I, I, I would I would put a, a copyright stamp on it if I were him. If he hasn't done it now, let's let's not let's give him the it. idea now. It uh, would make for an interesting article actually, as directors that classify their work in certain ways. Because I know yeah. uh, Tarantino kind of has his own thing. A little and bit. Then, and then there's other directors that, unless they write it and direct it, they don't put a film by. They'll put directed by if they only direct it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it I think there's all these complicated rules in the union and for when when you mm. are writing directing or if you are and and I guess uh because of that Quentin Tarantino and this is such a different conversation but uh this is fine. I like I like these conversations. Quentin Tarantino uh puts written directed produced or or by, mm-hmm. all by himself and so that disqualifies him from writers guild consideration because the writers guild requires a separate credit 
in order for it to be considered. That's why every year when he uh, when the Writers Guild, uh, you know, he won for Hateful Eight, I believe, right? Screenplay and, and in Glorious <laughs> Bastards. Uh, those years, yeah. those years, he did not credit himself like that. So uh, the Writers Guild was not a good. Uh, indicator of who was going to win the award because yeah. he was probably yeah. going to win the Academy Award both years, but uh, it was the, the he was not up for the Writers Guild. So I wonder if he's still in the DGA because I know there got, was the thing with Grindhouse where Rodriguez quit. Yeah, I, I the think DGA he's back in it. I think okay. there was a time when he he Rodriguez got kind of kicked out around the Grindhouse era and Sin City. Uh, because Rodriguez got kicked out because of Sin City, because he shared directing credit with Frank Miller, who was not part of the DGA, and that's not allowed. Yeah, You're not allowed wow. to do that. Uh, yeah, the union rules get get really ruthless uh, around about this stuff and uh, for credits and uh, because they negotiate all that stuff. Um, yeah, and for I mean, for a lot of people, it's very important mm-hmm. to, be, to have that credit and to have you know a singular voice behind things it's like you know the difference between written by and screenplay by and then story by you'll see sometimes all three of those in one movie mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and <laughs> and so w- with that in mind it's like the, when when you go with credits like you have if if you're not following the rules there there has to be a certain grace to that and spike lee you know to say it's a spike lee joint it's he's probably allowed to say that and then he has to do the proper credits because uh, he never I think he necessarily does. It's, yeah write it's everything properly credited and then at the end it's got the frame you yeah know, Spike like Lee even doing. Defy Bloods I just watched and it was a Spike Lee joint but uh, it was like four writers uh, yeah yeah so it's uh, you, 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 with this kind of stuff yeah but if I were Spike Lee I would have copyrighted that. Because I don't, I don't think anybody else does it, and I don't think anybody else has even done it as a parody. Because I don't think you can. Oh, uh, The Office did once. Oh, did they? Well, yeah, they did. Maybe a, a Michael Scott joint. A Michael Scott joint. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> well, there is parody law, which you could potentially get away yeah, with that. You could, yeah. Well, and so yeah, parody. It's it's all all open, and um, I also don't know many directors that have the swagger enough to put that on it, as opposed to. Film. Yeah, well, that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, Spike Lee has swagger is one thing that he's got going for him that is consistent throughout his career. Uh, I might not uh, enjoy a lot of his movies, but I I can respect the <laughs> the the attitude he brings to the. He has a certain style. Absolutely, he has a very unique, specific style which I can respect. Yeah, even if it, I don't always jive with it. Yeah, I mean, I don't and, know if that's appropriate. <laughs> that's perfectly fine (laughs) but um so it's interesting to talk about filmmakers that have their own like unique stamp when we're gonna be talking about a filmmaker today that i think throughout his career he he kind of established a, a genre of filmmaking like a specific cheap budget kind of filmmaking roger corman but he didn't have like a style. Like he he was an efficient uh, efficient filmmaker. He was uh, just to get get it done, tell these kind of stories, and that was his job. Like he he would get low budgets, fifty grand, such as for this one. He it was an even lower budget for his follow up with the same writer, Charles Griffith, uh, to do uh, what we all know at, at later on as a Broadway musical and other film is Little Shop of Horrors. He did they did the original Little Shop of Horrors. 
and uh, they even had less money on that one. Uh, but they, I'm kind of surprised that this one was fifty thousand. Honestly, uh, you know, there's a, there's a moment when he, uh, the main character Walter, uh, is Walter, right? Yeah, Walter. Walter he, Paisley. He's in his apartment the first night, and he goes and pulls a cup out of the cupboard. And if you notice, he doesn't open the cabinet. He reaches underneath and pulls the cup <laughs> out from the bottom and then puts it back underneath, even though there's clearly a door. Yeah. On the, and I was like, oh, my God, the cabinets are so cheap, they don't even open. Yeah, no. And what's so interesting is that this move, the, uh, the sets for this movie, like the, the, the cupboards and everything, were used on a movie previously to A Bucket of Blood. And I'm forgetting the name uh, of that one. But it was also used for A Little Shop of Horrors and the one after that. It's like they, they were just... And the casts were similar to all these movies. Like they a TV were just, director. Yeah, it was like a TV director. Like, they're just pumping these things out. It makes sense. I mean, it feels like an episode of The Twilight Zone, this movie. Yeah, like a, a, a very satiric, dark, comedic version of The Twilight Zone. Because I, I think... It's really funny. Yeah, it's a very funny movie. And intentionally mm-hmm. so. And, and there, there were conversations up to that. What I've I've been very rude up to this point though. We I've not introduced my guests. <laughs> we we kind of took some weird tangents. We did, we did, but that's okay. <laughs> um, uh, zooming in and about to be in a different state, but you're still in California. Uh, mm-hmm. Is Stephen Lewis, sir? How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderfully today. This is this is earlier than last time you interviewed me, but I think I can make it. Yeah, yeah. You think the 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 hour is is appropriate? The hour is appropriate. <laughs> uh, and I think you were looking forward to doing this one more than the last one. The last one you thought was a, a, like this kind of movie, a cheap B movie yeah, horror you said, film. Look, watch this movie, Faces of Death. I'm like, this sounds like a 50s oh, cheesy God. glorious thing. <laughs> Fuck. And then I'm sorry. And then I turned it on. I'm like, what the hell? I am sorry. <laughs> that that is one I know. I know what it is. I've seen clips from it, but it's one of those that I just won't ever watch in full. You know, it's it's. Fun. Funny, uh, um, we we had this whole conversation about it, and it, I think we came to the conclusion. Well, Stephen came to the conclusion that, that it wasn't as funny as I thought it was. I think the yeah. movie's hilarious uh, because <laughs> of how it's presented, how it's done. A lot of it's fake, mm-hmm. um, and but because it's the fake is shot in this docu fashion uh, and juxtaposed with some real footage, like autopsies and animal cruelty uh it it comes off everything comes off as real and so but but we we had this very good conversation just like Mm -hmm. going into the details of what this means and then we 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 like you know ventured off into philosophical conversations about death and and such it was Mm -hmm. it was a good episode right right steven it was great (laughs) uh and uh the other voice here in the studio with me uh is josh carter welcome back thank you it's good to be back how have you been good um i mean just waiting this thing out like everybody else just trying to find little hobby projects to do and uh trying some new cooking skills and I, I always I I'm an advocate for learning to cook better, especially yes. when you have the time and and, and you're a fantastic cook. I've had you oh, cooking you. many times. I appreciate that. Uh, I I I think I have growth to do as well. But uh, oh, we all do. I think it we never all do. stops. Yeah, it never stops. It, I think that's that's the whole point is uh, for everything is you, you it never stops. You're always going to grow. You're always going to learn and in all aspects of life and. Um, and yeah, I'm, I've, I always put myself through that. And yeah, we're all waiting this out. It's been it's been fun to have this little project to mm-hmm. do to meet up with people and talk, which is such a rarity. Uh, I think to be social. 
Uh, and then, you know, you know, talk about films that are fun, you know, talk about films that are, you know, impactful in a historical sense or just in an entertainment sense. And, uh, well, and I think, too, I mean, the way you kind of pitched the project to me, this is almost like a, a good little guidebook for people that don't necessarily dive this far into film and film history. I mean, a lot of these movies are cult classics. They get overlooked. You know, you never hear about them or you hear about them and you can't find them. Mm-hmm. Um, to watch yeah like a good watch this first <clears throat> yeah sort of primer yeah yeah becomes a nice little handy hitchhiker's guide to yeah. film well and, and that is kind of the idea and I, I i just finalized my list for the next season which is noir and uh like in in in, in traversing that genre Ooh, i want to take a look at that uh, i will i will i can I'll show you it to you after the the, the episode here. Um, the, it's a finalized list for the first season of noir, and I'm gonna look to do more seasons for the genre later on. But uh, in doing a first list, you, you I wanted to go well. What are some movies that are noir that people uh, don't consider noir, or or they have noir qualities? And then what are classics that need to be introduced into mm-hmm. it? And then what are some classics that I can forego? to bring in some that people don't know as well or or classics of a different regard in cinema history and and it's it's a it's a varied list there are yeah new, almost things new. that would make like a good double feature with a known movie yeah and so there's you're there's, toying with the canon there kyle that's very brave of you <laughs> <laughs> i mean and and my my western list uh we we revamped and we're gonna do some neo-westerns in it as well instead Great. of just classic westerns. i also want to take a look at that because i may have some suggestions sure i I'm, I'm, I'm always pretty much open. my favorite genre. Yeah, so. Westerns is my favorite genre. I, I'm surprised I'm doing it third, <laughs> which is strange for me because it's like my favorite genre. In fact, somebody gave me a, a, a inquisitive look. They were like, uh, oh, I was being interviewed by girlfriend's family, which happens, you know, when you meet uh, people on a trip. And they were one was like, oh, you like movies. What's your favorite genre? And I was like, well, you know, it's hard. It's hard because I have like favorites in all genres. But I was like, but I think the Western is. And it was like. What? It's like some people can't fathom it. People just don't get it. It, it ebbs and it flows. It comes yeah. in and out of popularity for sure. Yeah. Well, it's I, definitely it. kind of out right now, but hopefully coming back soon. I'm going to bring it back. <laughs> hopefully I can do it. Well, moving back into, I guess, so we're talking today of a Roger Corman classic. I don't even think I've, uh, we, we've talked about the character, Walter Paisley, but it's a bucket of blood. Uh, and it's a... Very funny uh, satire on the art world, uh, sp- specifically the beat culture, uh, what they would call beatniks back in the day in a derogatory term, an inflammatory term. And, you know, it, it satirizes the, the world of Ginsburg and Kerouac and, uh, you know, and all of its pseudo-intellectualism, mm-hmm. all of its uh, profundity. And uh, and it's it's just so funny of a movie guised as a horror film and uh it it takes its its uh inspiration from uh, like a 1930s film uh, mystery in the in the wax museum uh 1950s film that more people know house of wax mm-hmm. that that was remade into a very gritty horror film in like early Starring 2000s paris hilton. yes <laughs> paris hilton was in it um very very unfortunate but um like these it it it's the idea that to create art through murder and uh and walter paisley though is a very different 
protagonist to have this come out and uh, I'm, uh, and I think I would like to start the conversation on what a unique character Walter Paisley is he very much is kind of a Seymour um, in a little shop of horrors he's nebbish <laughs> he's uh, not not exactly all there he's he's kind of a rain man like he he's he's this uh, waiter in in this beatnik club and uh, he he kind of absorbs the the poetry that that's going around the beat poetry that's going around. He just kind of uh, spits it back out, and it's and it it's it's an interesting quality, and it it kind of summarizes the the what what propels him forward, in the idea of being popular or being recognized for art. It's something he desires, but he clearly doesn't have the fortitude. He doesn't have the patience. He doesn't have the creativity to do this, and it's it's kind of lost uh, on him. And so there's a frustration that that once he finds his way, which is through death and murder, it opens the floodgates. And he's it's it's kind of a tragic character. He's very sad. Yeah, and I, well, I think it's it's interesting that you say Rain Man because he is he is an autistic character. Yeah, he just doesn't. He has this amazing cognitive ability to be able to spout the poetry back word for word, even though the poet that just said it can't even remember it, mm-hmm. which is an amazing moment. Yeah. I don't say anything twice. It's like, <laughs> oh, you're such an asshole. He is. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but he just doesn't, he lacks a, uh, a simple understanding of humanity. And it's almost like, it's almost like a psychopathic tendency. Like there's just a fundamental difference of, a uh, lack of empathy, mm-hmm. which does occur um, in some autistic, you know, stages. Yeah, absolutely. Because and it, but it's not a malicious lack of empathy. No. It's just a they can't put two and two together necessarily. And I think he finds himself in that spot. Yeah, I, I can actually uh, speak to this experience quite personally. I, I have two brothers who are on the autistic spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so what, it, it, when you see how people function in, in, on the spectrum, there can be uh, a lack of empathy. And it's interesting how some people can associate a lack of empathy with um, like a sociopathic nature. Mm-hmm. And, and generally that, that does exist. But what, what, what it really comes down to is if somebody can recognize their lack of empathy and work towards it and actually a lot of people with autism can do that they can recognize their own behavior because their brain just works differently and it's about them coming to understand how it it works differently and Mm -hmm. um and whether you're high functioning low it's the low functioning is an unfortunate aspect of autism usually there there's no uh, there, there's cognitive ability, but there's no speech ability. It, it, get, it gets pretty rough. Um, but, you know, fortunately, we, we, I have two brothers who are on high functioning. One, one's even further on the uh, more of the Asperger's spectrum. But, yeah, you know, see, seeing a character like this, and, and this is at a time when that was not understood. Like, the, mm-hmm. they, they would not have said, oh, Walter's uh, on the autistic spectrum. They probably have seen people like him. They have probably experienced people like him. But autism was not necessarily a defined thing until maybe the 80s. Uh, like yeah. It, it's, it, it's, so it's yeah. Uh, interesting to see characters in the past through that, through that lens uh, because they, they've, they've been there. And I'm sure people throughout history have had it. But it's something that we're now starting to understand where, where we don't even necessarily understand it fully now. So um, yeah. yeah, but it is interesting. Like, when, when, yeah, when you say it's like lacking empathy, it's not of a malicious intent. Uh, yeah. I, and and I think Walter clearly, 
uh, embodies that. I, I, I think it turns malicious because of the ca- the, the exterior factors. Um, yeah, he's almost a victim of circumstance yeah. for most of the movie. There is a turn towards the end, which, again, you could argue, but it also is just like, dude, that's not normal behavior. <laughs> like, yes. don't, don't do that. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and, uh, Stephen, were you going to say something? I think that the... Um the the malicious turn is really f- that's part of the funny aspect is just that because like the first especially the first death in the whole movie is just him being stupid yeah like yeah. not even unable to read social cues or anything he's just like there's a cat stuck in a wall and he just starts jabbing the wall with a knife to see if he can cut it open and yeah and, and hits the cat and um, and then we move there to like a more self-defense and then from there to like a premeditated murder because he's angry at somebody. And and it's kind of funny how long it takes for it to get like truly dark as opposed to just like bumbling. Mm-hmm. And the, whereas, yeah, the last death is like, funny, but it is it, it is just an interesting way to kind of to build the story. Like that's what we're trying to ramp up to. And then and and. I don't know. I could be wrong, but it seems like he's quoting the poetry more and more by the end. Yeah, well, he—he's almost rewriting it because yeah. it's not word yeah. for word anymore. He's almost putting his own spin on things. He's—he has become the artist, um, in a way. Yeah, like an actual—he has become an actual artist by this crazy turn of events that's you know led him to start murdering people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and ba- and basically, yeah, he, he he starts to get his own rendition. He starts to find inspiration. Like that that's the the thing. It's like even though it, the the death ramps up to um, where he's taking a a, a, a a basically a premeditated stance on or or a randomized death, such as the guy in the the sawmill <laughs> where he cuts off his head because just because he mm-hmm. needs a bust for his uh, yeah. For his uh, collection, he, you know, it, it, it's always about the idea of of him, uh, like finding inspiration in death, and it's 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 interesting because the, then the movie ends on on that kind of note, where where they're almost completely uh, recognizing it uh, in in its completion of satire. If of you, yeah, community. if you look in their faces, they're all um, like, well. The police detectives aren't, but like the artists are like in awe of him. Yeah. And they're like looking at it and even the, the slam poet, uh, which thank God we left slam poetry behind, but, um, <laughs> that he just, he's like, Oh, it's his greatest work. It's his masterpiece, you know? And He'd call it the hanging man. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and, you know, spoilers. I mean, that's what this whole like, also don't is. wear flip flops with a suit. In a tuxedo, don't wear flip flops. No, that that's wrong. That's just completely wrong. Don't don't wear flip flops in a suit. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> Such an that asshole. That B poet is my favorite character, maybe he's... in any movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he's up there with the two stoners that are just oh, like kind of in there. Yeah, the two heroin I, addicts are unbelievable. I was surprised that there were like guys smoking cigarettes that were clearly supposed to be joints in a movie in the fifties. You know, there's a weird time in the 50s where uh, I think like when it was getting wide releases, because you have to think of it this right way. Right before Reefer Madness? <laughs> Reefer Madness was in the 30s, wasn't it? Yeah. It was that far back? It was that far back. Oh, shit. Wow. Yeah. Reefer Madness was like 
honestly that was considered to be on like cult classics because it's considered so ridiculous um Mm -hmm. yeah it was back in like the 30s where it was becoming a kind of thing and people were were trying to make it seem like it would turn you crazy and psycho and it's crazy it's it's the the drug does pretty much the opposite big tobacco yeah (laughs) it's probably big tobacco uh who's probably behind the the anti-vaping uh stuff now too um they, they own all those companies yeah they i'd be surprised though yeah if william morris that owns truth sorry yeah. this is another tangent yeah we're getting off but yeah the, it's crazy yeah william morris the largest producer of cigarettes in the country is also the owner of the largest anti-smoking campaign in the country you have to you have to wonder if it's like, a, an idea of of like kind of a marketing like a subconscious marketing of that well they got you're, sued you're, once right because for that very reason right Probably, yeah. It was it sounds about right. It's, it's part of their deal is like they they're allowed to keep existing if they put so much money toward anti smoking stuff. But then they they mm. got just the right people in that company to, and this was a while ago that it, that it was it was this sort of like um, reverse psychology, and they found the anti smoking commercials led to more smoking. That would well, and and also the anti smoking commercials in general are so over the top that yeah. a lot of people would probably go that's r- fucking ridiculous like, yeah. that's silly i'm gonna go smoke <laughs> i'm gonna go have a cigarette <laughs> i thought about reefer madness a lot watching bucket of blood well it's got similar um vibes like it it, it, yeah. it comes from that same tradition it's almost uh, and i think bucket of blood d- doesn't come from a seriousness like reefer madness was serious like it was mm-hmm. like trying to a warn of an uh, of an epidemic of violence that uh, and and craziness from the teen community who would indulge in this drug while bucket of blood is like sa- a satire it's it's like a satire of the style while also being mm-hmm. a satire of the the art com- even though uh, beat culture had moved on by 59 when this came out like uh-huh. it was going into more conceptualism it was going into most uh, like like Pollock like Pollock was coming out uh, post Okay. this time and so uh like but but beat culture was very much in everyone's mind and i think everyone fucking hated it like mm-hmm. at least, like you know like <laughs> beat poetry is just awful like it's it's just an awful art form and uh it it, it doesn't take much mindset to do it and uh and, and it it just lasted way too long <laughs> but but uh, and I'm glad there's a film out there, and I can't think of another film that satirizes art culture and in in general because everybody gets their uh, their uh, their target. I mean, it's it's not only yeah. artists; it's also dealers; it's also critics. Like the the, mm-hmm. the critic in the movie mm-hmm. is hilarious. He's like, you know, looking at it, and he's like, "I'll probably pay five thousand for this." Yeah, he's, he's like, like, "I'll pay fifteen hundred for that," and he goes, "Well, it's yeah. gonna be worth five thousand after my review." <laughs> yeah, you know, just this kind of idea that everything is peddling each other. Uh, one movie came to mind, and it was one that came out last year that's not as good, and it's Velvet Buzzsaw. I was just about to say that because this movie reminded me a lot of Nightcrawler, mm. which is the same director as Velvet Buzzsaw. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, Dan Gilroy. So, um, Nightcrawler. Yeah, Nightcrawler has its origin in in the kind of a Roger Corman B movie as, like, but it's quality. also got that kind of like victim of circumstance transforming into the the monster. You know, yeah, the person that's driving his own actions at yeah. a certain point. 
That's true. And no matter uh, how reprehensible they are. Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, Velvet Buzzsaw follows a similar way. And it, it is trying to satirize the the art world. It's trying to satirize the critics, the the, the dealers, the artists. And uh, and it has its its roots in, in a bucket of blood. Um, it just doesn't, it's not as clever. And, the, and it, it turns into kind of uh, kitschy horror mm-hmm. like in it. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. It's actually worth checking out um but i think bucket of blood kind of in it's seamless because it's an hour and five minutes mm-hmm. and it's seamless uh, approach just kind of does it and it, it there's there's really no extra to it there's yeah, no fat to it the, this movie is remarkably simple which we can talk about later with because that's just robert roger corman's thing yeah um but yeah something like velvet velvet budsaw just really lacks the momentum that this movie has yeah, and it takes like too long. It yeah, it it it, it uh, finds a little too much self pleasure in itself. Uh, like and and that's what a lot of modern movies tend to do. They tend to get a little more. They're very fascinated in self, and um, that that tends to. And be Bucket a problem. of Blood doesn't do that. It's not constantly winking at you. It's just telling the joke after joke after after weird statue yeah 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 and griffiths charlie griffiths uh who wrote it like he he very much had that intent like he uh he in fact it was roger corman who didn't want to make it a comedy um he he was like (laughs) let's just that we he he, uh, roger corman i think said and i'm not gonna quote him verbatim he basically is like a comedy means we have to be good we don't have the money or time to be good That's amazing. <laughs> and Charlie Griffiths was like, he's like, no, let me let me go through it. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll we'll get there. And and sure enough, it's um, it, it is a very funny movie. It it takes its shots. It, it and and what's mm-hmm. interesting, we we talked about this on uh, an Evil Dead Two episode. Is that uh, the the approach to doing comedy is the same approach to doing horror in the sense that you have to have a tension to a buildup and mm-hmm. then release. And and very much that that's interplaying here in the horror elements and the co- comedic elements of a bucket of blood, and it's surprising that it can be so funny. In fact, I think I think because of Walter's uh, ineptness and and uh, defensiveness, uh, how how it all builds up, you almost are uh, giving a little cushion to the horror. Like you're you're seeing that that he's playing a part in this world and critiquing this world rather than. Him becoming a true monster, like the, the, as as Josh said, a victim of circumstance. Uh, oh, I thought I, just, like I, I was nodding in agreement, but I'll, I'll just add it's it's almost like it's it's reefer madness, but this time the reefer is beat poetry. <laughs> it's like, Don't mess with this stuff, kids, or else you're gonna murder your cat and your neighbor too. <laughs> well, there, there's so much to it too i think i was i was thinking like i wrote down in my notes like is this corman's like personal philosophy of making film uh because he had a very specific you know way of operating and an understanding of the film industry that necessarily you know was totally outside of the studio system and Mm -hmm. you know he became very successful at it but this whole thing of being an outsider and wanting to be in the club Mm. um, and wanting to be one of the artists that's there and then the depth that you would have to go to to get there and he never quite gets there and it's it almost feels like Corman is making Walter himself which is I thought was interesting to, for him to be a you know, kind of a simpleton, but th- there's there's not there's a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, you know Corman was never really part of the club. 
yeah. at, at no point in his career, even when he was making slightly bigger budget uh, B movies like Death Race 2000 and Cannonball in like the 70s, like he never was part of the club. And uh, and and Dick Miller, who plays Walter, um, who's most notably anybody would really only recognize him from Gremlins. Terminator uh, and Terminator. <laughs> he's the gun shop owner. He Terminator. is the gun shop owner. Uh, but in like in Gremlins, he's a huge part. And anybody growing yeah. up with Gremlins, like really would know uh, Dick Miller. And uh, he had this career back in the day in these really B Roger Corman B movies, uh, like a regular player. He, in fact, he was supposed to play Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors, but he told them he's like, I already played that character in A Bucket of Blood. I'm gonna play a different character. So <laughs> they they made him somebody else. And uh, Dick Miller even uh, was uh, trying to be a screenwriter, had no success at it, and then tried very hard to be more of a leading man, but he became a character actor in all these kind of movies. And like, even though he's the lead in this movie, it was kind of rare for him. And uh, he also is somebody who wanted to be part of the club and wasn't part of it. So I think there is some... Uh, some truth to the the sentiments here of of wanting to be part of something that you're not part of, and then you have to pretend you have to do what you can mm-hmm. and like and and Corman could be enacting like through m- like murder on screen which is fake that that's synonymous with him making B movie horror films like mm-hmm. that this kind of grungy m- movies about murder and about about death and uh, and it's just and it, that's his art. It's his art, and he and he has to try and make make do with what he can do, and that yeah, that would be a great way of looking at it. It's an so, interesting take. I mean, uh, Stephen, had you watched this movie before? Oh my god! Oh, you're you're muted. Hello, I'm back. <laughs> there you go. Um, no, this is the first time I ever saw the movie. I actually haven't seen any of the other movies uh, you're you're referencing, but um, <laughs> yeah, so it was all, it was all pretty fresh, but also predictable. Well, I mean, these kind of movies have that. Yeah. Know, it's yeah. like you've seen Got these kind pattern, of movies. Yeah, there's patterns. Yeah. yeah but, I mean, but I enjoyed it the whole time. Yeah. So, yeah, it was all new to me. It's Yeah, it's fantastic. It was completely new to me. And I really wish I'd, I just watched it for the first time last night to do the podcast today. And I'm kicking myself because I really wish I could have watched it three or four more times because it was it's great. And not at all what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. The title is... Yeah. Fairly misleading. The fact that it's a Roger Corman movie is fairly misleading. It's it plays on a different level than most of his other material. This is very true. Yeah, uh, um, which time, I was really. I found a lot of meat where I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, especially for something so lean. You know, it's yeah. it's 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 a it's a lean film, hour and five minutes, and uh, you you get a lot out of it. And you're right, Bucket of Blood is misleading. There's literally no bucket of blood. There is no there, bucket. There filled. is the pot. There is the pot. When he kills the detective and he's hanging him up in the rafters and he's dripping blood on the floor, he puts the pot down. You I was like, that's going to be statues, his next art man. piece, and then it wasn't. And then it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> he he does which, kill the cop with a frying pan, which is uh-huh. uh, fantastic. And uh, what what I love doing this season is seeing all the interplay with a lot of other movies. And we did a, a episode like a week or so back on eating Raul, and the whole concept of the film is them killing people with a frying pan. <laughs> And that's their weapon of choice. Like they don't kill a single person uh, in the movie other than with a frying pan. Uh, so I, I have to imagine it, it uh, because uh, Paul Bartel, who did Eating Row, worked with Roger Corman. He directed Death Race 2000. I have to imagine he was a fan and that they, it was an homage to Bucket of Blood. Well, yeah. I mean, the last podcast that we did was, um, um, shit, I 
can't remember the name Miss of it. Miss 45? Miss 45. Yeah. And also about someone who goes on a killing spree at first, coincident, you know, happenstance, mm-hmm. and then slowly progresses to being a serial killer and also has a very nosy neighbor. And I was watching, I was like, why does Kyle keep giving me nosy neighbor movies? <laughs> well, you have to have That should nosy be a whole neighbor. season, Kyle. Yeah, yeah. Nosy, nosy neighbor. neighbor movie. Nosy well, that would give it us an excuse to watch The Burbs, which also has Dick Miller uh, in it. Burbs is fun. I love that movie. Burbs is so fun. God, weird connections all around because the Burbs has the dog in the Burbs is also in Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which we did an episode on. <laughs> like was, yeah, which is also Cormit. Yeah, um, he was associated with it, wasn't he? Oh, is he? That's something that didn't get brought up. We did like an hour and a half on Pee Wee, like we're just talking about the history of Pee Wee. Pee Wee, um, him and Burton. Uh, it was Rubens who concocted the character, and like he and Phil Hartman wrote the the, the screenplay with uh, Michael Varhol. Uh, and so it, 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 it just how it came to be is like um, uh, amazing. And I, I will reiterate this fact and I want to know if anybody knew this because growing up, I watched Pee Wee's Playhouse. Did mm-hmm. you, did you Steven at Not all? Not really, no. But would you have guessed that's that, that the TV show came before the movie? Would you have thought that? Yeah, I, I, th- I think I did. It, it didn't. <laughs> Really? <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. I think it came after because yeah. I think I remember that because I I didn't even know there was a movie. I just knew the TV show, and I remember it was such a huge deal when Paul Rubens got caught in the adult theater. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he, masturbating. And he's like, he's like, it's a kids show host, and he's in a porno theater, and like my parents were like, you're not watching that show anymore. Oh no. And so, and then it wasn't it wasn't until much later than they were like, there's a Pee Wee movie, and I was like, well, there's a Pee Wee. Like this guy came back, and they were like, oh no, this was made way long ago yeah. before you were born yeah no it was, was a it was such a it was a uh an awakening moment it was like an epiphany like because when i was doing the research i was like oh he, he they did the movie after they did the show and then i'm reading it and i'm like wait a second they did the movie before they did the show the the show is how what came after the, the movie? show is how it was it's crazy I, I was like that's not how it works and uh, it must have been that so was kind much of the method back watching then. the movie just like if you've never heard of the character Pee Wee Herman before, your kids have never watched it on TV, and then you you show up to this movie theater, and that guy is running around. Yeah, it, no, it's, it's very strange. Yeah, no, I mean, I, but the Muppets were a thing back then too, which I is do. also very. I love the. They're Muppets. They're such a weird. I love them too. There's a weird tone to the fact that it's just like there's a bunch of stuffed animals running around all over the place, and everybody's just like, yep. Yeah. And everybody gives like heat to cars for being like unrealistic and like this weird meta narrative that's grown up around cars for some reason. And it's like the Muppets. Like <laughs> this is weird. They're running around. Yeah, it is weird. It's fantastic though. I I grew up with the Muppets. I love the Muppets. I was like heartbroken when Disneyland got rid of Muppet Theater 3D. I was so mad. Ooh. It's like my favorite thing to do when I went there. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I don't know. Are you looking up if Roger Corman had something to do with people? Yeah, I don't think he did. I don't. I yeah, I don't think he did either. It. Yeah, he's um, he he started uh, like he was still involved with some stuff in the eighties. Uh, I mean, God, he worked for so long. It, he's truly a pioneer. You could do like a whole study on Roger Corman and like his various decades of work and how they changed because he changed with the times because because he's basically like on the ground like his ear to the ground of like what the because because they could make something so quick you would have an immediate understanding of what 
the people in the theaters were wanting and mm-hmm. he was constantly like like he survived so long be- and and made movies for so long because he was just catering to the idea to the public and you you, you kind of wonder it's uh, you know a lot of you you try and think that the public wanted in the 50s stuff like bridge on the river kwai and you know you know this high art like mm-hmm. high drama epics um or you know on the waterfront or or sweet smell of success like these great films uh, and you'd think that the audiences wanted the greatness you know because we're all looking back in a prism of oh these were the great films of their time and these are what we watch now but a bucket of blood is like an example of a lot of the films of the time that were just catering to the public need for something quick and and a little trashy and a little mm-hmm. you know just entertaining and uh bucket of blood like is a slightly above the majority of the films that came out at the time but that that's what people wanted that yeah. what that, those were the marvel films those were the the, the the fast and furious experiences that they wanted back in the day it was the kind of, they were they were a little trashy and little they dealt with some subject matter that you couldn't get on your tv and uh yeah they they pushed the boundary you're right like uh, bringing up the fact uh that you were surprised that they were smoking marijuana and and, uh-huh. and, and or in and, and then passing around a vial of heroin uh, yeah. as well as a plot point yep. and and the fact that um Oh, they're, they're, and and, and, the, and the cop went after him instead of his dealer. <laughs> yeah, he watches her just like I'm just gonna give this to you. Like I have yeah. to do something for you, and then goes after him. Yeah, no, and I, I think I think we we all sympathize with Walter in in that regard. Like he shouldn't have murdered the cop, but his life was going to be ruined simply because this gal, a fan yeah. who wanted to go home with him. Uh, gave him some heroin, just some casual heroin. Here you go. And he's like, he didn't know what it was. He was I like, know. I don't know what this is. Um, poor guy. And then he's about <laughs> the to get The cop tells him it's worth a lot of money. And he's like, oh, wasn't that nice? She gave me something really expensive. <laughs> <laughs> like completely doesn't understand the situation. No, he's in. Oh, man. So it's it's moments like that that just are, are have so much humor in them. It's very funny. Yeah, and then in that scene, very scene, you, as you as you pointed out, where he puts the body up and it's dripping blood into the pot. Like him trying to to shield his neighbor from mm-hmm. seeing it. It's just hilarious. Like he has the presence of mind. He's like a kind of you know infantile in a in a way, but he has the presence of mind to know. Oh shit, I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he he does realize it pretty much immediately after, except for um, no, it's the first two, and then then once he once he sees what it can get him, once he's part of the community, um, I think he doesn't necessarily care. Yeah, that big changeover is when he yeah. he shows up in the the new outfit, and he's got the he's smoking the long cigarette, <laughs> and he's got the beret on, the beret. and he, all of a sudden he can talk proper and hang thing. with everybody, and he's not awkward anymore. That's kind of the big turning point for his he, character. He turned, yeah, it's funny because he's like vibing and blending in, adapting to his new role until somebody questions him, which is the gal, mm-hmm. his next murder victim, uh, who's this model. And she is kind of a bitch. Like, like She's she, incredibly <laughs> vapid. She's vapid. She's full yeah. of herself. And, you know, everyone's trying to say, oh, this guy, no, he's a great artist. Like, he's a sculptor. And she's like, mm-hmm. no, you're a waiter. Like, And she's like, yeah. she, like, constantly brings him down. And I just love his matter-of-factness. He's like, I don't like you. 
yeah <laughs> just and then it uh yeah and then turns to murderous intent and uh you almost it's it's funny it's like you almost are giving him the benefit of the doubt in in each murder except for once he does random to some guy who's just working in his sawmill at, late yeah. at night for some reason <laughs> just like by far the most intense do. moment of the movie oh yeah absolutely it's and uh, it, and had it been done at a later point uh because they have a shot of the blade coming down and then screams in a modern movie, the blood would just be spraying over this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this. Mm-hmm. But you don't need it. You don't need it. You don't need to oversell the idea. Like, it, it, you know, simplicity is the definition of a Corman experience. And uh, it's it's almost like going to the theater. Like when, when, a th- uh, mm. when a play has less set dressing like you kind of need to fill it in for yourself like that that's like going to but see i'm just Corman thinking thing. of the play that we saw together once which was lieutenant of inish Moore, which, which is, is not, not off that no the, 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 the bloodiest uh bloodiest uh, play of all time has uh buckets and buckets of real blood uh, well real blood you know corn syrup blood like on stage <laughs> and like they sh- I remember, my favorite moment in that is when he bloody. shoots the cat and the blood sprays out of <laughs> yeah. the thing and you're just like holy shit <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, we saw that uh, in downtown L.A. In L.A. Chris Pine was yeah. the lead. Uh, he was really good. It was yeah, really he good. rocked it. Yeah, well, and there's a difference. Like, when, when you have the money to do a play, I'm thinking of, like, black box theater. Yeah. Like, you go to those 90-seat theater theaters in L.A., and, uh, the, you know, they have a couple chairs, and they're like, we're in a house. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. literally not in a house. They don't even have a door. Like, you know, you just have to pretend. Like he, mm-hmm. and, and so with Corman, it's almost in that simplicity and that limitation. You, you fill in the blank. Like, there, there's a lot of uh, actual set dressing going on, but the sets are very cheap. Well, to, uh, yeah, to take it back to that cabinet thing that I brought up earlier as being so funny mm-hmm. to me. Think about how many people watch this movie and never noticed that. No, probably not. They put Because he's just going like, eh, people, like, their, con- their attention's over here. They're not going to notice that. And... Like I was looking for stuff like that because it's Roger Corman. I was like, I want to see how cheap this is. There were a just... lot of genius workarounds. Yes, in the movie. Yeah, I bet yes. if I if I watched it again, just looking for that, I'd be entertained because right up to like 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 getting around cheap things, like how much happens just in the cafe, and but also like uh, the they had to get around the gore. I don't know exactly how the rating system and censorship worked then, but like. You know, the blade comes down and they don't show the blood splatter everywhere because it's the 50s. But they do show a sculpture of a severed head with like guts hanging out the bottom. And so you <laughs> you don't see it in the moment, but you do get the full effect of the murdered man mm-hmm. uh, yeah. with, with his brains coming out. And uh, because it's, you know, a sculpture, uh, he gets away with it. And and the tons of like that's some of the best reason to watch 50s movies um hitchcock's a good example is just genius workarounds yeah and well and hitchcock had more money but he but, yeah but 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 he was almost like i'm gonna do workarounds because i can like mm-hmm. these yeah. guys learned you know hitchcock was doing movies in the silent era like so he had <laughs> learned all the tricks he almost defined all the tricks and so a lot of these guys learned how to do uh the si- simplistic workarounds because they just could like you know they they're not overthinking the process they they are saying 
the what the audience cares about is he's looking for a cup he's gonna get a cup mm-hmm. they don't care about lo- actually like thinking about whether he opened the the door or not like you know yeah. they're not necessarily paying attention to that it's it's mm-hmm. it's and so it's interesting to see those in these old school films and to appreciate how uh, matter of fact and and efficient these guys could be in the presentation of film well and like one of my all-time favorites in this the only reason I bring this up is because Dick Miller is also in this movie, which After Hours. Oh, um, my God. After Hours is incredible. It's and, an amazing film. Yeah. Uh, Scorsese movie. But there's a, a a really long tracking shot in After Hours where he's running through the streets. And it's, it's I think, almost a minute long. And it's tracking him sideways. The trick is... He, the camera's not actually tracking parallel with him. The camera is stationary in the center of a roundabout, and he's running in circles around an intersection, and the camera's just panning with him. And it's just panning and following him around, but it looks like a minute-long tracking shot of him running through the sit- the streets wow. of New York. It's brilliant. It's super brilliant. Like, yeah. so simple. Yeah, it's simple. And, uh, yeah, I forgot Dick Miller was in After Hours. <coughs> God, he's it's so good. Uh, it's... It, it's one of those top Scorsese films that not a lot of people know about. No um, one talks about it. Nobody and talks it's also it. in a very similar vein to A Bucket of Blood as far as uh, tone and kind of a weird <laughs> yeah, like it was... uh, semi-off-putting sense of humor, but also it's it's really funny but also kind of dark and twisted. Yeah. Like, well, I mean there's a lot of homage to those kinds of films like the fact that he gets plastered uh, mm-hmm. And like as an art piece, you know, as as a body Shit, art piece. I didn't yeah, think about that. Yeah, yeah is, he does. Is, is is all in after hours, and so there, there's a tone to that, and and the uh, the idea that the city is filled with these eccentric weirdos, like it, it's they're all very their own their own they're their own B movie vignettes throughout the whole movie. It's, it's I would very interesting. I would wager that that's probably why Scorsese cast Dick Miller. Probably. <laughs> He's he's a fan of cinema. Yeah, like, yeah. I I would not put it past yeah. him. Yeah, I feel like most of the directors from that generation, the, the 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 film school generation, has at least one B movie vignette movie. Like, or just Uber does it all the time. Or it that filters was, throughout their sensibilities. Their yeah. cinematic what is it, what sensibilities. Is that group called? Oh, the, the like the Scorsese, Spielberg, yeah. Lucas. Lucas was his whole career. <laughs> What are, what are they called? Uh, the the De Palma, like yeah, uh, Brian De Palma was in it. Um, I don't know. I what they, they called call them. the film school brats or something. Film school brats. They're the brat pack of yeah. film school. Brat pack, yeah. <laughs> Josh will look it up. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna <laughs> it's annoy gonna, me. Gonna annoy him. It is interesting to see. Like a, a lot of people, we have to put like a, a movie like A Bucket of Blood in context, and you have to view it as as what a lot of these other filmmakers would view it as. And it, there's a lot of inspiration to be found in its 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 uh, efficiency and in its mm-hmm. workarounds, its uh, simplicity. Because, what you were saying is birthed out of silent film. Yeah, well, you you know, because in silent film they had ma- massive um, you know sets, but they they had a, a, basically you you could there there was no dialogue, so you'd have to like tell the story visually. You'd have to mm-hmm. tell the story in a purely visual manner. Um, and a lot of these filmmakers, like, like, like Scorsese, De Palma, it, look at a lot of their movies. It has B-movie influence. They're a little more refined. They come from a, in a different age where the technology has improved. They're, mm-hmm. they're getting bigger budgets for independent voices. 
Um, Corman comes at a time where it's just he's a workman, and you have mm-hmm. to find an appreciation for this because I think a lot of people who would watch this would immediately turn off their their minds to watching it one because it's black and white and i I, i'm not trying to be insulting there are some people who just will be like i'm not watching a black and white movie i know there's a lot of people like that and and then there's another thing where it just has this cheap veneer like the the the, it's not filmed elegantly it's filmed Mm -hmm. very haphazardly and with very just planted shots it's not move a moving camera all too often Mm -hmm. and because of that a lot of people just because of how they uh, indulge in their cinema uh today because a lot of everything's so polished and refined they don't appreciate the workman who's trying to tell a story as simply as possible and Mm -hmm. and you almost have to go back to those to really learn how to tell a story uh and 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 scorsese is 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 a is a student of that, and and you have to thank Corman for for having so many opportunities to see how uh, how you could make so many stories as simply and elegantly as possible, and they can still be entertaining, they could still be funny, and they can still say something. Yeah, he's produced. I looked it up when I was trying to find something else earlier, but he produced four hundred and fifteen films. It's insanity. It's That's, insanity. Like Quentin Tarantino is going to land at ten for his career. Yeah. Like you know, and and, and should be. I mean, he directed far fewer. I think he directed like seventy. I mean, that's still an insane yeah. amount of content, an insane amount of control. But, like, yeah, you're right. He he became more of a producer of a lot of other voices uh, later on in his career. And and that's it's just an exceptional quality to to back that because he is more of a producer like his directing sensibility is is more of a straightforward sense and to give it to somebody else who might have a little bit more flair a little bit more personality in how they film that that was a smart move to be a producer because he can understand how you can make that movie with said amount of money and be be a a voice of Mm -hmm. guidance in doing that so yeah he directed 56 that's and still an insane amount of movies it's producer as mentor kind of yeah no and and i think he he is a mentor of film like he he just is a mentor of if you want to be a filmmaker you should really study Roger Corman and what he did and how he developed and and there's how he a changed. lot of guys that owe their career to him. I think like Joe Dante, I think is one. Yeah, um, Joe Dante for sure. Paul well, Paul Bartel, absolutely. It wasn't. Um, what's his name? I mean, Troma wasn't associated with Corman, was it? No, but it's very much a Corman esque. Yeah, it's very um, much in that vein. Deviation. It's so hard. I was looking because I was we were trying to look up the Pee Wee's Big Adventure thing, and it's like I was scrolling through his IMDb, just trying, and it's you literally just have to keep scrolling because there's so many movies that you're just like, it's like, and there's so many per year that I would I just stopped looking at the titles and started looking at the year. Yeah, because I was like, okay, I know it's in the mid '80s, and it's like it took me <laughs> ten minutes to get through the '90s. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. No, and the the he's a landmark institution of cinema and mm-hmm. and 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 that's why i included it on this season it's like you have to have a roger corman film like he, he he did so much and like this one in particular just transcends the 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 that basicness that people associate because there's so much going on in this film like the the, the satire the criticism of the art culture mm-hmm. is is actually kind of profound uh, and it's very pointed and it's very focused the character of Walter is a very complicated character, and uh, you know, w- maneuvering through the ideas of moral 
you know, the the lack of empathy or the 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 lack of understanding the the modern moral sensibility, but but also you know being it, it being almost openly accepted for him to sacrifice it mm-hmm. for the sake of art and and because the the people have this idea that and and it it it, it could be translated to a to the modern art culture of today like through the 90s and 2000s like modern art has a a pseudo intellectualism like a a provocateurism at its core that could be mocked like you can mock this like there there, there's any 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 sort of culture with a self-seriousness can be mocked and uh even the 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 film culture one of my favorite quotes of all time and it's my quote on my instagram for the longest time it's my quote is Werner Herzog, and he said, uh, "Film is not the art of scholars; it's the art for illiterates." Uh, and it's it's my favorite quote because, like, I don't want to take myself too seriously. I take film seriously, but I don't want to take myself and my love for film ser- too seriously. Like, I don't want it to be my defining aspect of my life. That's why I venture other things in life, like music, and I venture other things. Uh, like writing and I venture traveling and, and uh, culture and food, like, you know, mm-hmm. it, uh, but, but you tend to go to some places and film becomes this kind of identity for some people or, or one thing becomes an identity for somebody and they, they just really invoke it and they live it. And th- sometimes that's a good thing, but I think that self-seriousness, seriousness can be mocked in, in this regard. I, think, I mean, it should be mocked, honestly, mm-hmm. you know, anybody that you, any sort of pretension I always approach with trying to poke holes in it. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, important thing about you know, so many people take film very, very seriously to the point where it's like I stopped telling people, I, I'd really stop answering the question directly or I'll qualify it a lot. If somebody asks like, what's your favorite movie mm-hmm. or is this movie good or what should I watch? Give me some recommendations. And it's like, I kind of have to really knowing who the person is, you really have to, I have to guide yeah. my answers mm-hmm. in a specific direction because there are people that take it very like deathly seriously. And it's like, if it's not in the Oscars, it's not a good movie. And it's like, but it's very a very strange mindset. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just like, but there's also like, <laughs> I only I, watch, I would have, I would have a very hard time. There's a lot of people I know that I would have a very hard time getting them to watch bucket of blood or oh, yes. miss 45. Or um, I could probably pitch them on Miss Forty Five just because of King King of New York, but sure, yeah. It, movies like that, like a lot of people have a really hard time appreciating and just watching. And it's like sometimes it's, it's like you were talking about. It's like it's for the people. Sometimes it's just a movie's just entertaining for two hours, and that's all it's supposed to be. Yeah, well, and and mm-hmm. and you have to come with an appreciation for all sorts of cinema, all sorts of genre, all mm-hmm. sorts of storytelling, and. It, when you do that, it, it, oh man, it unburdens you. Like you, you just start to appreciate things. You just start to admire things for how they got created. Admire things mm-hmm. for what their existence. Admire something for its intent. Admire something for its uh, accidental qualities. Where mm-hmm. you know, because sometimes you can have beautiful accidents on set and some beautiful accidents in storytelling. And and it's you just have to open yourself up to that stuff. Like anybody who disqualifies films for any any sort of aesthetic reason or any sort of uh genre reason i don't know like i you know i i i find that to be a very closed-minded yeah how are you not angry all the time yeah (laughs) that's your viewpoint it's like there's a lot like movies are predominantly bad 
Yes. As opposed to good. Yeah. Like there, yeah. there's a lot more bad movies than there are good movies. And so if you're going into that, just trying to qualify it immediately, is this movie good or bad? Like you look at something like Rotten Tomatoes. Statistically, it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and you look at something like Rotten Tomatoes and you're trying to put a percentage on like some of my favorite movies that I've ever seen are like below 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like I, it, I, I have my, I have some. It just boggles my that, mind that sometimes. Are, yeah, yeah, no, it, it, the, the, this kind of idea of the, the aggregate. The, mm-hmm. Oh, if, if, if majority of people say something is good, therefore it's good. Uh, mm. I mean, uh, I suppose in, in a society that does operate like that, a republic where, where, you know, 50, 50, one, 50 percent plus one uh, yeah. allows for progress or change or or solidifying if something is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, when we that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. You know, it, just because 50 percent plus one say something is good doesn't mean it mm-hmm. is. You know, we, we've had tons of aspects of history where majority has been wrong, you know, in a moral sense, in a. Uh, administrative sense uh and and i i don't i think even though that's the attitude that we approach and especially i think it it damages the conversation with aggregates such as rotten tomatoes or you know metacritic is slightly better but but it's still this idea of rating something whether it's above average or average or good or not and i don't that doesn't at all ever tell you the whole story I'm told constantly that something is a great movie on an aggregate and then I watch it and I don't think it's a very good movie at all. Yeah. And then there's a lot of stuff that needs to age. What was the um, movie that the director came out recently and was like, can I resubmit this to Rotten Tomatoes? Because they gave it like a 40% or something. But now like people have gone back and said like, no, this movie is actually pretty good. I don't know which one that specifically is, but they were having this conversation with another movie. We did an episode on this season is Scott Pilgrim versus the world. It's, 10 year anniversary is this year and um th- basically that got slammed by a lot of people it was a the box critics off. didn't like it well it was it was it was a critic like uh, i don't know what like somewhere like i don't know what this is you know like <laughs> you know it was it, it, yeah and uh what happened was it, it became a box office failure and so the audience didn't and I, I i read a recent article and edgar wright had a really great comment about it um he he said and he said what his story was i guess one of the heads of the studios or somebody one of the producers sent him a email after the box office failure and said it's years not days uh, hmm. and, and that gave him like hope and he, and that guy was right. Like that movie is now considered a cult sensation, uh, yeah. because of its dedication of, of voice, its dedication of style, its dedication to making it a moving video game slash comic book adaptation, like this blend of it. And we, we had a great conversation about all that went into it this season. And, and it, it truly is, a. a, a remarkable and and you're right it takes time we've talked about this on the plot hole that even the oscars should be taking place in matt damon uh, you know i don't let, like everything matt damon says but he even had this sentiment was the idea that we should be having the oscars five or ten years later mm-hmm. uh, on on a particular year where we or really... the year before that's yeah. what i think i think that if you told me all the good movies that are gonna come out this year and just give everyone the awards and then release them 
that'd be a lot easier on me as a consumer trying to find the good movies. Sure. Uh, I go to a lot less, <laughs> go to yeah. a lot less movies than you do, Kyle. I go to <laughs> so. way too many. Well, and obviously I don't go to any now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but that, that is kind of how the studios work though, is because they, they will build up to the Oscar season and the Oscars happen and the ones that win and people finally hear about them, That's then true. they'll go wide to the rest of the country. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're kind of privileged living here in LA. We are. You get a lot of stuff before a lot of other people get it. Yeah. Well, and it, it's a different. I think some of the culture. the aggregate stuff that some of the aggregate stuff happens is because when people go to the movies or watch any kind of entertainment, you guys froze. Are you hearing me? No, yeah, we're, 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 we're hearing uh, you. You're just sitting still and listening. <laughs> Sorry. You um, <laughs> when people go to watch the movie or any kind of entertainment, it has a lot to do with how they're feeling right now. You know, yeah. and it's really hard to get someone to sit through Phantom Thread Ugh. unless wonderful or, movie or, you know, 10, 12 Years a Slave, because unless there are a lot of voices telling you, please see this movie. It's very, very, very yeah. good. Mm-hmm. And and so they, they look at the aggregate to see if there are that many voices trying to tell them that to kind of override their feeling of, I'm not sure if I want to sit through Phantom Thread right now. Yeah. No, there's benefits to the aggregate and there's negatives to it. I'm, yeah. I'm saying uh, a lot of people interpret it as, oh, it's almost like they, they interpret it as uh, the stamp and a lot, and it's used in marketing tactics. Certified like, fresh. Certified fresh. This is, this is a good movie and it, it might not necessarily actually be a good movie. It just, mm-hmm. it's, it's palatable to a lot of people, Yeah, you know, and, and that, that's, uh, it's not a, purely negative thing to have an aggregate i'm just saying it, it mentally speaking it it allows people to not be necessarily engaged in their entertainment as they should be mm-hmm. and uh, that, that i mean and that that's just with rotten tomatoes or not people yeah. aren't necessarily engaged in their a- entertainment i wonder what the rotten be. tomatoes is on bucket of blood you know that's a good question <laughs> does it i mean i can look that up yeah would they have a score for that uh yeah they they would but it wouldn't be as 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 present you know uh as accurate as say uh something of a modern day because the, i mean the the whole critic industry is something to fathom about uh today for for wherever people are writing and 77 percent which would give it a certified fresh these that, days. that would be certified fresh would be certified fresh but it would also essentially give it an average score like you know yeah. it's, it's this is an average movie and and arguably on how it's filmed and how it's put together it's like below average. like if you did that assessment it's below average it's like not very well filmed it's pretty cheap in fact yeah, dick the miller cabinets don't open it's not realistic <laughs> it's not realistic even dick miller expressed frustration for how cheap it looked like uh back in the day he was like the acting's good the concept's good the the writing's good uh he goes but but uh goes but it looks so goddamn cheap <laughs> and, and, and he's right like it's true and if you associate on that like on an object, objective like filmmaking level yeah it's like workman's workman craft like it's it's pretty mm. basic but but there but but taking into consideration everything else the acting is quite good like dick miller's yeah. really good in the in the in the role like you can the beat poet is hilarious and just how dedicated he is to being that pretentious. Like mm-hmm. everyone's putting oh, in God, some work. The scene where he's talking about his food. I forgot about that. <laughs> and they bring him breakfast and he's like, is there anything 
you know, it was this grass raise. And I was like, that was a thing in the 50s? Yeah. Like, this is still going on? Yeah, he oh, even... and the, the wheat germ muffins yeah. everyone was talking about <clears throat> constantly. Yeah. He talks about something being organic at one point. Yeah, and, and like... I was like, holy cow, this is all the way back in the 50s. I thought this was like, now this was a fad. No, no, this is this has very much been a thing. And, and it just has taken... Uh, different deviations and different uh, focus uh, like but it's very much been been part of the that kind of pretentious conversation of 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 grass-fed organic it's very funny the movie like you could supplant like you could just modernize the the look and Mm -hmm. like put modern Mm -hmm. actors in the same thing and just change the beatnik culture to like Whatever the modern art culture is today, and uh, or whatever I think is it's the... still around poetry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, you can do. I was just going to say poetry. Instagram influencers. Oh, okay, so I actually wanted to talk. <clears throat> to make them influencers. It's actually very, very much present. Uh, in, in you could take the same themes and put it into Instagram influencing. Uh, absolutely, mm. and I was going to bring that up in conversation. That uh, I think the the main character flaw that drives uh walter to do what he does is uh is inadequacy is a feeling of inadequacy mm-hmm. and i think you could that that feeling is pretty um universal like i i think in a lot of in, does he even recognize that in himself though because I, I don't know if he does i think he he loves it and like he bought the clay oh yeah he and, bought the clay to try to make a sculpture and you just see him in that first scene yeah. you watch him try to make a sculpture and just go this dude just doesn't have it yeah well and I, I i wouldn't say that he necessarily recognizes that he feels inadequate but i think there there is a feeling of inadequacy when when he's you know a part of this community trying to be part and he's not necessarily really he's like he's he's knocking on the door outside and i i think he feels it i don't think he's of presence of mind to be self-aware and recognize that that's what it is but I, I think this and, and that goes into the idea of like Instagram influencers where there's a lot of people who try and enter this world to gain minor popularity or minor, um, you know, presence in, in the culture. And they not, won't necessarily understand of self-awareness that they are inadequate at the job as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that that's a universal quality in, in these kind of fads. Like it, mm-hmm. the, the, in general, the movie is critiquing fad. Uh, in in looking back, that the beatnik culture disappeared at that and, uh, point. And scenes yeah, in general. Scene, yeah, scene. Yeah, this kind cultural of this. scenes. And and the cultural scenes can transcend from like specifically the art world. They can go into these social media scenes, and and I see it a lot. I see a lot of people that think you know th- that's what the social media age does is it it promotes voices. At, at through a loudspeaker that aren't that usually don't have anything interesting to say, but they think that they're interesting. They think that they're important, yeah. and through that, I think it builds a lack of self awareness that a lot of voices are inadequate, are inadequate to actually being productive in the in in this culture or in this fad, and so and you could even argue that the fad itself is not productive. And so, and it, maybe that, that that form of art isn't productive, and you you can have these conversations. I think it transcends the feeling of the of nineteen fifty nine. Looking back at the beat culture, I think you can take that feeling that's trying to that sense of wanting to belong, and put it in a social media age. And I think it it really uh, finds another form of truth. Uh, mm. Yeah, yeah, that would be an interesting satire. I mean, you've kind of already seen a couple of them, like the, um, what was that one? I think it was uh, Dave Franco 
and they were having to kill people for likes and people were like live streaming it. It was like a year oh. or two ago. Was Emily <clears throat> Roberts in it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I forget. You're right. Yeah, it was like that. That would be a Corman-esque yeah. a concept to to the. It's uh, kind of a parallel idea set in the in the social media social age. media age. Um, there's a lot of critique on social media in this regard. Like Ingrid goes west um, mm-hmm. with Aubrey Plaza. Like they mm-hmm. so so they they exist today. I just don't think they're as insightful. I think it takes somebody to be a little, you know. Uh, uh, being aware being a little more aware of what this all means and i i think i think it's hard when when we're constantly engaged in it you know mm-hmm. you know the beat culture you know looking back at it it had been done so you're able to look at it in its entirety we're uh. still ingrained in the social media age i don't think we, we have not exited it but we can make comments on it as we go along but we won't so necessarily- we need so we need a grunge movie like yeah. what is it from the '90s or the yeah or something about the Red Hot Chili Peppers in the early late funk, '90s? The funk, funk rock, uh, the funk. Uh, <laughs> dude. New metal, new metal would be a great fad to uh, oh, satirize. Uh, I would watch that movie. Yeah, I'd watch do, the hell do a Limp Biscuit kind of movie. You could do some truly over the cop, over the top uh, caricatures oh, inside of that too. Yeah, just you know, just the actual Limp Biscuit. I'm thinking of that actual first album cover where it's the dude with the the hoodie and it's that exaggerated cartoon that was like really popular in the 90s for some reason. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. You could satirize that entire culture, and it hasn't necessarily been done yet. Uh, I think I think we oh. we view them as a parody of themselves. You know. Yeah, it's been mocked, but never like properly satirized. Properly, yeah. Nerve um, was the name of the Dave Franco movie, by the way. Which was it called? Nerve. Nerve. Yeah, I remember Came seeing trailers 2016. for that. Yeah, it's it's interesting to view that as like a Corman concept, which it is, uh, done in a very polished modern sense, and that but then not as good. Maybe because it's so polished, I don't know. Like it's just it just feels so. I think part of what comes out of Corman too that not but it kind of goes in parallel with what you were talking about earlier mm-hmm. of making a movie of the time. But I think he it takes somebody that's kind of outside of that system and not necessarily playing it safe that can really like sink their teeth into an idea and um, really kind of do biting satire of a concept because they're not they don't necessarily have to cater to the general wide audience of what's culturally acceptable at the time yeah Um, and I think that's something that is by and large lost in major film you know there's there's stuff done on Amazon and Netflix, some of these smaller productions that are getting made now because of streaming services, I think they have a little more opportunity to um, bite at culture a little bit and not really have to worry about their off audience because you don't have to look to just to box office return mm-hmm. for a movie being successful or unsuccessful. And that's what Corman did. He didn't have to make millions off his movies. He'd he would just do it piecemeal a little bit at a time. And each one of his things would turn a profit. And that's yeah. how he was able to make the next one and make the next one, make the next one. It, it, uh, it, so he it, didn't yeah. have to play by those rules of like, we have to cater to this audience. Yeah. It was, it was truly amazing how profitable his line of work became because they made it so cheap. Mm-hmm. And it, it was almost like a guarantee. It was pretty much, they'd even talked about that in the making of a bucket of blood and like deciphering, uh, deciding if they would make it, 
a comedy or a horror film and one of the i think it was charles griffith said you're gonna make money on it anyway might as yeah. well try try something different and adam sandler model yeah kind of yeah <laughs> yeah no it is yeah it yeah. is adam sandler is very much like a corman of comedy um mm -hmm. like happy madison in general like you, they 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 churn out even more so than just adam sandler movies yeah. they churn out wrong missy you know they yeah. churn out uh God, other Nick Schwartz in projects. Like, what was the one? He was like a, a porn star. Like, oh, I don't remember that oh, one. Yeah. Um, Buck, Buck but, I mean, Larson yeah, like, somebody brought up to me recently that, uh, and I'd never, or they pointed it out, and I'd never really caught on to it. But it's like, he kind of makes, like, destination movies. So he'll just yep. go hang out with all <laughs> of his friends in some exotic locale, not because the movie needs to be sh shot there, he just wants to go hang out with his friends in, a, in an interesting in place. And so his movies are almost like travel logs in a yeah. weird way. Yeah, that's it's bizarre. It's bizarre. No, and it's genius. It's genius mm -hmm. uh, it, on, on a business front. I, I can't necessarily respect the content that comes out, but uh, it but people watch it. At mm -hmm. least at least Netflix just buys it up because they know people are, are at least just, popular. Yeah, just yeah. turn it on. And it's not just popular here. It's popular in the world. It's crazy. It's crazy. Really? Yeah. No. Know. Oh, dude. I think he's more popular in other he, nations than here. He is one of those transcendent wow. stars. Yeah. That's probably part of why the travelogue works. Mm -hmm. Probably. probably. Like, well, a few and, and, years back, there was this great LA Times article. It was like a woke defense of Adam Sandler. <laughs> a woke defense. I it love, was I awesome. You're like, this is weird. It was like, it was right after Zoltan had come out. And you're, you're like, guys, this guy has just made Zoltan and uh, oh. Chuck and Larry. He's like, this is the only mainstream comedian doing immigration take tackling immigration and gay marriage back to back you're like oh this is weird i mean he did do that yeah he did do that yeah uh, i think it was zohan you don't mess Thank with you. the Not zohan zoltan, <laughs> no, zoltan. Yeah. Yeah. what is zoltan what is that it's like a it's power probable. rangers uh character <laughs> i think that, it, that actually no it's what bubble is... boy it's one of the it's the cult from bubble boy oh <laughs> jesus and then it became a thing with a base how do you know that uh, yeah how do you know that steven i don't oh. even know that <laughs> of all the weird movie trivia <laughs> well now i know it i'm absorbing your your weird movie trivia today yep. um, no it's dude where's my car zoltan yeah oh it's in dude oh, where's my car dude where's my car, dude, where's my car? man very dude. strange Man, callbacks, man. I haven't seen like Bubble Boy or Dude Where's uh -huh. My Car since like they came out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cr I, it's amazing how these th films were like in a, a very pop culture sense of the time. Mm -hmm. They were very immensely quoted uh, at school yeah. or uh, amongst people, and now the, the, they're not they're not the in the consciousness anymore. I I love Dude's, Dude Where's My Car though. <laughs> that movie is. It is one of those things that, like, it, when I'm in my pretentious younger days, I looked at it and I was like, that movie's not good. I'm not going to watch it. And yeah. it wasn't until, like, years later, I was like, ah, this is on. I'll give it a shot. And then it's it's such a funny movie. Yeah. And it's like, it's like a Roger Corman movie. It's not polished. Not it's pol not yeah, perfect. It's very cheap and very, like, quickly done. Um but I love it. I mean, at the end, they like save the universe. It's, it's very so Bill good. and Ted for yeah. a different different audience. Yeah, um, yeah. and I uh, 
I, I will be the first to admit that, like, in my youthful pretension, I would turn down some films. And then the other, like, like a year or so ago, uh, Devin got me to watch with a group, not another teen movie. And I was like, guys, that movie's not good. And then we're watching really it good. and we're like, okay, this is funny. <laughs> this is a funny movie. It's really good. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it, it, it is what it is. Yeah, not another teen movie. And you know, that's the thing. That's the, always the secret, I think, to uh, finding enjoyment in a movie. If they know what they're doing, mm-hmm. if they know what they are, and they're not being, um, you know, in your face about it, like you know, because Aronofsky can be in your face. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he is, but he can be in your face, and you can t- be a turnoff. You know, at times, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll be for, uh, I'm pretty forgiving of a lot of Aronofsky because I think he is a great filmmaker. Um, but, uh, but, but with movies like that, it's, it's like, you need to release your pretension. Like you need to understand that they, they're just trying to make a little comedy that's, that's tongue in cheek, that's Mm -hmm. silly. And Mm -hmm. you got to be able to tap into that. You got to be able to tap into those kinds of ideas. Uh, and, and then you can find enjoyment out of it. And I think that's the same thing with such, such movies like a bucket of blood that get kind of lost they get kind of lost and not talked about in the history of cinema because they were these cheap movies at a time that were entertaining a lot of audiences and making enough money to keep making these kinds of movies but they get lost on an audience and a lack of appreciation and and that's why i i included it, is i wanted to find another an uh a lane of appreciation for movies that like roger corman produced these kind of cheap uh you know <laughs> I always think of the line in Eating Raul when I say cheap he's he's like it, there's no, I don't sell cheap stuff you mean inexpensive and, <laughs> uh, you know and it's like yeah but uh, I, I think there is a cheapness to, to it all and, and, and there's uh, you know Frank Zappa had a great song about cheapness and cheapness in films and uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a charming quality I think I think if you can find the charming quality in a cheap film and how it's being done and look to what they're trying to say and what they're trying to do, there's always something to be uh, achieved, always something to be gained from doing that. Mm-hmm. So even if just entertainment, even if just entertainment, absolutely. Um, for a bucket of blood, was there anything else on our minds uh, before we look to wrap up? Just that I loved it. Oh, you loved it, um, oh. and and Stephen, like so, so just to like have that final conversation, like what about it is, is it that you love about it? Like what what did it tap into? I love that it was it was multiple kinds of funny. Um, I love that it was like the sculptures at the end of the day were actually pretty good. <laughs> like I was looking at, I was like, oh, that's pretty good. Terrifying. I loved yeah, uh, good. like it was it was. Um, it was quick and it was just like lean and and but but it wasn't it wasn't weak like it, it had a lot that it, that it, that it showed you for a short amount of time and you had a lot of laughs and and uh and then the the two or three grizzly moments that were very 50s grizzly and there was no reason to ever not like it or no moment that you that you that that you, the enjoyment slowed down Sure. Yeah. And Josh, do you, is there something else that tapped into you that like that you were like, I love this, like, and I'd like to. I mean, I just, I yeah, I loved it. I first off, I was talking about the misleading title earlier. I thought this movie was going to be something completely different. Yeah. I knew, I knew it was Roger Corman, and it had the title of Bucket of Blood. And then you read the description of um, a busboy at a cafe accidentally murders a cat, and then turn, you know, starts 
killing people. And just like, holy shit, this movie's going to be, you know, crazy and wild and intense. And it was so much more low key than that. <laughs> but so, but like I said earlier, it's so, it had so much more meat to it. And then and the character of Walter, uh, which we didn't talk about, he's played that, that character shows up as yeah. Dick Miller in other movies, which yes, is really funny. <laughs> yeah. Even though, spoiler alert, he dies if you've gotten this far and haven't watched the movie. I think I gave it away earlier like, yeah. that he's ha- the hanging man. Like He, he even though himself, yeah. And he's supposed to have put clay on himself, but it looks like just like gray paint. Yeah. <laughs> it's really it's silly. not that much to it. Um, <laughs> but he's such a sympathetic character at the opening, that opening scene in the cafe that you almost like you forget what's going to happen to him and you buy into and you just want you want him you want to love him so much that he like you kind of forgive mm-hmm. a lot yeah. a, a lot of what um you know we were talking about with cheap filmmaking and like the stupid you know the cupboard again it's like we just forgive it because we're so invested in that character yeah and i think that is um I was really surprised by it and really caught off guard how much I really liked this movie. I, I'm going to watch it again several more times because um, I really, really enjoyed it. I wish I'd gotten to do it before the podcast, um, but it'll have to happen after. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. And uh, and I, I agree with you both. I, I think there's so many layers to it. it, it even though it's lean, it, it, it captures the pretentiousness of the art world and, and all of it's like uh, proverbial Kool-Aid that everyone's drinking. Like the critics, mm-hmm. the, the, the dealers actually, we didn't talk much about the dealer, but like the, the Leonard, his boss becomes such a conflicted moral character, but he is mm-hmm. absolutely reprehensible because mm-hmm. he, he's a coward. He, Oh, he's a coward. Yeah. He, he's submitting to the idea of the culture uh, mm-hmm. and that he can make a little money off of it. Like what's interesting, I think is too to that point is that in a modern movie that character would be, would be played much more like the villain much more like an exploitative force yeah. onto walter just to make money but in this movie they really play it with a that moral conflict and you see him like multiple times it's, it's a great little sequence where he's going back and forth to the phone because he keeps trying to decide whether or not he's going to call the police yeah. and the guy keeps saying well, i'll give you 300 dollars," and he's like he's like no i can't do it he's like i'll give you 500 and he's like You'll have it by Tuesday. <laughs> it's like they really play that uh, that yeah quandary very well. Yeah, because he he's the only one who knows, at least suspecting, because he drops how how professional of him. He drops the piece of art and he sees fur, and he's like, "Oh, mm-hmm. this is a real fucking cat." Like he's yeah. like, "Oh shit!" And so it, it, it's it's in that 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 layering it's 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 actually delving into character like you know walter becomes mildly sympathetic even though he becomes more Mm -hmm. monstrous like leonard is it's like he has this kind of gray moral hesitation like he's trying to figure it out then then the culture of the art world is kind of uh, this kind of pushing forward momentum to to these kinds of acts being uh done because it's almost like for the sake of art murder must happen you know and it's it's uh even though they when they find out they they reject but it's almost like they round about when they see a suicide done in the same way they're yeah. pretty much accepting of it as a piece of art like they they are constantly uh in, in a state of of immorality because they're they're going to uh, art's more important yeah, it, it's they hard. being the real bad guy without hurting anybody. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. And and actually, art being the bad guy. It's funny. I, I, Walter <laughs> quotes him 
I, I need to find the quote. I need to, because it, it's a great quote that uh, the poet says, Maxwell H. Brock, he says it first, and then he repeats it before he kills the guy in the sawmill, is life is an obscure hobo bumming a ride on mm-hmm. the omnibus of art. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> well, it's, the op- it's like the opening quote of the movie. And yeah. Loved it. I actually wrote that down in my notes. It was the first note that I had. Yeah, and it's and it's such a great line because it, you're right, Stephen, it's for the sake of the art. The art, art and, and sacrifice for your art, killing for your art becomes uh, almost like a saintly act. Like it, it's it's for the sake of art. And, and, and that is where the satire comes in. And that's what, and, and for a movie for an hour and five minutes to tackle characters with this kind of complexity and for this uh, sort of satire of a world, and then for that sort of feeling to be translated to a modern day sensibility where uh, where cultures and fads tend to find these things. Th- this movie is is brilliant in mm-hmm. that regard. And, it, and it, it's it's timeless, even though it's very cheap and of its time. The, the everything that's happening in it is timeless and it can teach you a lot about filmmaking it can teach you a lot about satire and comedy and character and it's great it's a great movie it also has another quote that i really enjoy and i'm gonna steal for my everyday life for everyday life yeah well, it's one of the the heroin addicts or dealers or whatever just one of them says i gotta make me some air to say that he's gonna go outside i gotta make me some air i gotta make me some air make me some air man it's just great that one had me dying yeah it's great no it's it's fantastic um well steven thank you for joining us today um thank you for having me this is fun yeah it was a great great conversation more fun than faces of death uh, more fun than faces of death <laughs> um so do you it, we were talking last time if you had anything to pitch but you, you said it's going to be coming later on it's going to be coming a lot later so don't so worry about we'll, it. We'll hold off on it. We'll, You'll hear we'll, from me soon. Yeah, if you're interested in noir, we'll get you on that season as well. I'm interested in every season you have coming up. These, oh, these all sound amazing. All right, thanks. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I, I I need people on board. Uh, it can't just be me. <laughs> that would be just infinitely boring. Um, and uh, Josh, you'd be like the guy, <laughs> the kid in Wet Hot American Summer, where you're just podcasting by yourself, and eventually you figure out nothing's plugged in. Nothing's you're plugged not in. broadcasting to anywhere. Um, yep, that that would be me. That that that's like the destiny of my life. Uh, just doing it, you know. Hey, it's for the sake of doing it. It's uh, <laughs> this is all a ruse, isn't it? This, none of this is real. None of this has been plugged in. Ha ha. Stephen fig- ah. kind of figured it out because uh, <laughs> we couldn't. He couldn't hear Josh. Uh, <laughs> But Josh, uh, oh, c- cinematographer, photographer, they can find you, Josh B. Carter. Yeah, I've kind of been taking a break from social media, so don't I look don't at that. Bl- don't blame you. Don't look at that and expect any updates anytime soon. Kind of, it, And it wasn't, just to be clear, it wasn't because of the protests or anything like that. Oh, I they don't think that, we were reading into that. But. With, just so anybody in the audience doesn't think that. It, oh. This started way before, it, even like when the pandemic first started to happen and you know all the stuff about people posting like you got to learn this new skill and here here's what i'm doing every day and here's i was just like it was so exhausting it is exhausting isn't it that i just was like all right i'm done i'm out and then i'm so glad i did um there are things i wish i knew but i try to keep in touch with people on a more personal basis yeah again there's always positives and negatives with like social media and uh and and aggregates and whatnot anything of our modern culture on online and but but it's immensely negative I, i think you can get a lot of positive interactions online uh in in people that you don't necessarily see every day 
but but it is really just a it's a soapbox for people uh, especially in a time of a pandemic where people are constantly telling you what to be doing constantly telling you what you should be thinking constantly telling you what you should uh, be in, in involved and engaged in and you know it gets very it, it gets very exhausting you know? yeah, it, yeah like it has a tendency at least for me personally because um, I've done this several times throughout my life I mean I graduated college right when Twitter and Instagram like came out so it's always been a part of my post school years for me I have a ten- it has a tendency to like rile me up mm-hmm. so much sure and again you have nowhere to put that energy yeah and mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, it riles them up and then they put it back into back into social it. media yeah. and it becomes a self-perpetuating machine that just, I think is caustic for a lot of people. Um, and, and I recognize that in myself. And so I just have to have these periods where I just, I take a step back. Disengage. Cause, yeah. yeah. Cause it's just going, there's nowhere, there's nowhere for me to put that energy. There's nothing for me to do about that. I kind of have to, I have to be conscious of it and aware of it and work on it in my own life privately. But this isn't doing me any good. Yeah. No, and so. that's and that's great. That's a great self-awareness of that that your own relationship with social media and mm-hmm. to know what 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 you can get out of it, what you can uh get out of it negatively. And mm-hmm. so um um yeah, no, and I'm I'm learning that about myself too. I I don't put things back into it even though it's uh you know, just trying to even remotely have a conversation is impossible, I think. I think it I think it's 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 a detriment to understanding uh in the long Civil run discourse yeah i, th- I think because because if i'm disagreeing with someone in person uh i'm not going to insult them to their face like well at least i'm not the kind of person to do it yeah. I, i've been insulted to my face but it almost feels like the veneer of uh, it's almost it's not anonymity but you almost feel like you're in a car it's like the same mindset when you're in a car you feel like you're invincible mm-hmm. you can get away with things and it's so it's so funny it's to me toxic. too so many people qualify it as like no we're having a debate we're having an argument and it's like they're basics rules for that and, yeah. and obviously you never took a debate class yes. you know because oh yeah it's yeah. like one of the major tenets of debate first and foremost the first thing they taught me in debate class anyway was don't make ad hominem arguments yeah don't make an argument that attacks the other person personally yeah you're arguing against the idea you're not arguing against them as a human being yes um, and that is just a basic fundamental fundament of civil discourse, and it's something that's completely disappeared from our culture. Uh, yeah, and I think I think it's it's the the toxic protectiveness of online. Uh, it dis it disconnects us. Uh, it, oddly, it connects us and then disconnects us at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I I appreciate when we can come together and talk about movies. It, uh, like this is supposed to be like a positive. Uh, adventuring of movies. I think the only movie I've been negative about this season has been Barbarella, um, but uh, it's uh, which which I think is warranted. Um, but uh, but like it, I want to focus on positivity, positive energy, and and look look at people when I'm talking with them. Like you know, be engaged with them uh, by voice, by by tone. Like it, I think tone gets lost, and uh, I've been I've been very lucky to have so many people volunteer and be willing to do this with me and uh, i've been appreciative of both uh steven thank you for doing this with me and josh you've done a, a couple of them with me and it's, it's, it's my fourth one now. fourth one yeah and uh it's been it's been great it's been productive for me it, it gets me back into a mode of of thinking about things in in 
in argumentative ways, like where, where I'm presenting an argument for this film and, and presenting why this film is what it is and why you should appreciate it and what went into it and what, what its time period is. And, and I, I try and do that with everything I engage in and with everyone I engage in. And I, I, and I, I think everyone out there, you should venture to the idea of talking with people in person. Don't, don't engage with them online. Yeah. It's it's really just a circle. It 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 won't be productive. But I I I guarantee, and I and I and I've had this experience in my life. People that I've disagreed with, like and had toxic conversations with online, I've met with them in person, and we it's been immensely productive. Mm-hmm. And I it I, takes courage to do that. Like, it does. You do have absolutely. To build yourself up to it, but it's worth it. It is absolutely. Um, well, gentlemen, this was great. Uh, this was great. Just like deviation conversation at the end. I, I, I appreciate all of it. And, uh, so thank you for coming in. Yeah. Uh, anybody listening? Uh, thank you for joining. I know movies and you don't with me. That's your host, Kyle Brule. And go watch bucket of blood. It's on prime. <laughs> and go watch bucket of blood. We'll see you later. <laughs>